John, if you're not a Christian, was someone that was with Jesus three years. He wrote, from his perspective, stories about Jesus. And he tells us at the end, I'm writing these because I want you to believe that if you trust these stories, you will have life. Would you please stand out of honor for John and his word? The Holy Spirit has inspired these words. John chapter 2, we're going to read a story, McKenna, about beverages. But it's not coffee, it's wine. Here's the story. John said it this way. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to that wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it out. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Would you pray with me? Father, our life this week has been a life going a lot of directions. It's hard to pay attention. Would you send your spirit, take these words off the page, take this ancient story into our hearts, and may we see Jesus. May this sign wake us up to who he really is. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, with your Bibles open, please be seated. I wonder if you've ever read the C.S. Lewis book, The Silver Chair, if you haven't, it's okay. We read this to our children growing up. Would you flex your imagination by expanding it toward a story I think is worthy of your attention? The opening scene from this story, I'll set up for you. The details in the dialogue will ready us to enter this story written by John. Jill and Eustace, two characters in the story, are being pursued by bullies at a high school. That happens. To escape from these bullies, they encounter a magic door and a wall. And they discover that they are brought through that door and that wall into what C.S. Lewis, the author, calls 
the place. Is it heaven? Is it a heavenly dimension? Well, now they're suddenly out on the edge of this towering cliff, and I won't spoil the story, but Eustace falls off. But there's Jill standing with Aslan, the Christ figure in the story. And Aslan appears to Jill and is going to commission her to do something very similar that we are being commissioned by Christ to do with Aspen Grove, to go out to make disciples, to go with the good news to rescue the lost. He tells Jill, you're going to have to go find a lost prince. How is Jill going to find him? She's only a young lady. No one's seen this prince for years. No one knows where he is. Well, Aslan looks at her and says, I'm going to give you four signs to guide you. Specific sites, occurrences that are going to happen along the way, but you've got to memorize the signs. Repeat them again and again. She, like any teenager and probably like me, said, I got this. <laughs> he slows down and looks at her and says, this solemn warning, remember, remember, remember. Whenever you hear something that many times, I think we're trying to get someone's attention. Remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake up in the morning, when you go to sleep at night, when you wake in the middle of the night. Those of you that know your Bibles, that's from Deuteronomy. That's what, that's what we're supposed to be doing with our kids with the Bible. He says, but whatever strange things may happen to you, don't let anything turn your mind from following the signs. It's important. Know them by heart. And then he says this. Remember, remember the signs. And here's the word. Believe the signs. The title of this sermon is tagged this way. Remember the sign of the wine. If you're a Christian, I know you know this story. Much of what Daryl and I will be doing over the next couple of years is simply stirring through the Scripture you to remember what you forgot. Don't we forget so many things? Remember the sign of the wine. Look at verse 11. This, John tells us, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And what happened when he did it? He manifested his glory. Now, what is a sign? Let's slow down and think about that. A sign is something that points to something bigger. I have Anthony's permission, who's a first-time visitor. Thank you for giving me permission. I said, what brought you here? He said, these were his words, I saw a little sign out on the road. That little sign is not Aspen Grove Church. That little sign is not something bigger. Anthony walks in here and says, whoa, okay, there's a new church that started here. The sign is given to point to something bigger. And Anthony, if I can just confess openly, I was grumpy a couple of weeks ago with my own wife about putting out these signs. It rains out there. I think Brian was telling me he came because of a sign, and I was the, it was the week I was grumpy. A sign is small. It points to something bigger. And welcome, thank you for following that sign. A sign is meaningful rather than meaningless. And does, doesn't that, isn't that something we need in our culture? Well, why is Jesus giving signs to John and the followers? 
He's manifesting. He's billboarding. He is showcasing his glory. What's glory? That's a churchy word. Glory is the beauty under the beauty. I drove into the Y today, and the sky just was splashed with colors. The beauty behind the beauty is glory. The goodness, and by the way, good wine's going to be created. The goodness under the goodness, that's glory. The truth under all truth is glory. So, a sign is a significant display of Christ's glory pointing beyond itself to a deeper reality, and it's only seen by the Spirit with eyes of faith. So what sign would God do first if he's going to become man and come to the earth? What would you do if you were God and you had to save a bunch of sinners? What would be your first sign? I love this. The first sign God does is he's going to serve the highest quality wine in the highest quantity. That's how God shows up. Why wine? Now, I do want to slow down here. Wine can be something that we need to be careful about. I've spent 20 years of my life as an emergency department nurse. I've seen many people misuse and abuse alcohol. If you're someone that struggled with this or know someone I want to be really careful because the misuse and the abuse of a good thing can just wreak terrible havoc. This is a place, if you struggle with any addiction, this is a place where freedom can happen. This is a place where you can have a Lord who will help you. This is a place that believes in the Holy Spirit. So as I get really excited today about this first sign and the wine, are you hearing me? I'm not saying we have a license to abuse good things. And I'm also saying if it's hard for you to listen to this, I hurt with you because this is a very, very difficult thing when someone who is made to be the image of God comes under the domination of a substance. Why wine, God? Why this sign? Wine, it says in Psalm 104.15, it makes glad the heart of man. Genesis, the beginning of our story, calls wine the blood, and that's an important term, of the grape. What's a sign? It's something that points to something bigger to itself. Wine was the life blood of Christ. Daryl will be overseeing the table today. He will say these words from Jesus. Jesus said, this is my blood. Can you imagine being John sitting down and going, no, that's, that's wine, Jesus. By the way, there's nothing in there. But that's, that's wine. What are you talking? This is my blood. Great mystery. Why wine? Blood. Christ the King's new life and new way to live it is pouring into earth from the bottle of heaven. Okay, let me give you a map today. We're going to remember the sign of the wine by inviting. We're going to remember the sign of the wine by filling. And we're going to remember the sign of the wine by trusting. Look at verse 1. Let's remember the sign of the wine by inviting Jesus in. It was the third day. By the way, Christians, that's a 
That's a big alarm right there. Something significant happened on the third day. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We meet on the Lord's day because this was the third day he was dead. And on the third day he rose again. Interesting that his first sign would be happening on the third day in the sequence of the story. There was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Okay, where did the first sign happen? It happened at a normal hometown wedding in Cana, probably at that time between a bride and bridegroom that were teenagers. When you picture Jesus, do you imagine him being invited to a wedding? His first sign showcases that God delights in those one-week festivals and parties. John will end his biography with Jesus at a beach party with his friends. Jesus laughed. He enjoyed parties so much that when you read all the gospel writers, he was labeled a drunkard. You don't label someone a drunkard unless you often caught them drink, catch them drinking wine. He enjoyed hanging out with people. Some of you think Jesus might turn wine into water. Some of our friends don't even come to church because they think church is the place fun comes to die. We need to reimagine. In fact, this goes back to the garden, not just the middle of COVID when so many people stopped going to church. In the garden, remember what the serpent said? Is God really good if he's holding back that fruit on that tree? Is he really good if he's holding back that fruit. Reimagine Jesus getting ready to turn a dying party into a brimming feast with new wine. How do you imagine Jesus? If you're considering Christianity, I invite you to ask yourself, why drink water when you could be drinking wine? I'm talking about spiritual things here. I'm talking about the deepest meaningful things. What if a life, life in relationship to Jesus is better than life on your own? And Christians, how many of us get so weighed down with the wreckage of the world that when a friend says, hey, you want to come over? Or there's an invitation to do something fun. We just are too serious. Jesus spent time having a good time celebrating the major moments of his friends and neighbors. Signs are about meaning. Meaning is about connections. Why did Jesus do this first sign at a wedding? Because Jesus is going to display his commitment to marriage between a bride and a bridegroom. Why? If you keep reading John's story, Jesus will be called the bridegroom. Jesus has actually come to win himself the bride. The bridegroom invites the bride into one of the most intimate of relationships. The story's going nice, but there's no story that gets good without conflict. Do you see it happened? Uh-oh, verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, why is this so bad? Why is this the conflict in the story? That culture was a shame culture. If the bridegroom can't provide wine for the party everybody's looking and going, he's not going to be able to provide 
for his bride. Jesus is going to step up here as the real bridegroom. He's going to make a large quantity of high-quality wine out of water, and he's going to showcase his mercy to meet the needs of people. Why did this happen? It's so that these two people and their family would not be humiliated. Two disorganized teenagers at a dying party would experience the real bridegroom making the party a success. And by the way, God is the only one that has every right to shame us for our sin, for our lack of loving others well. But that day, the only shame giver became the shame taker. He will take on himself this challenge. And by the way, this is a church that is a stutter-safe place. Some people say public speaking is the scariest thing. Maybe McKenna, when she came up, she's like, oh, I hope I don't stutter. If you stutter in your life like these teenagers did, they didn't get it right. But when Jesus shows up, part of what he does is he says, you're not going to get it right the first time all the time. It's a stutter-safe place. You can run out of your own resources because Jesus can show up and do what he does best when we have our least. But you have to invite Jesus into the events of your life. Notice that if Jesus wasn't invited to this wedding, the water would have remained water and there wouldn't have been any wine and the shame would have stuck. Parents, husbands, wives, grandparents, employees, employers, you and I will fail to provide just like those teenagers. We will run out even today. What if we invite Jesus into those spheres of life and allow him to transform them. The details of the dialogue are worthy of attention. Look at verse 4. Jesus says to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now that can feel a little harsh. We see Jesus as a really nice person. He just kind of saved the party. Why would he say this to Mary? Well, woman was a title of respect. It wasn't, he did not step out of the bounds of respect, but he's saying something to his mother. Mom, our relationship is stronger than ever, and yet it's changing. I'm entering my public ministry now where I will bring heaven to earth, and I'm not just your little boy, but I am the Messiah. Jesus is displaying his glory as the king. Mary, I care about your wants And by the way, he says this to all of us. He cares about what we want. But our wants do not drive his sovereign kingship. It's very important to know. Mary, I will meet your needs according to my plans. But submit to my timing, Mary. Do you submit to God's timing? This is hard. The telltale sign of the Messiah's arrival was that an hour of great wine was predicted. Isaiah 25 says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Do you see that? He will swallow up death forever. Oh, the the people were looking forward to to the coming of the Messiah in the book of Amos. Amos says it in this short way. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. Telltale sign of the arrival of the Messiah. 
What does Jesus mean when he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come? Circle that because it's going to be said over and over. It always refers in his John's story to the hour of his death where he would shed his blood on the cross for sinners. The only shame giver becomes the shame taker. This event, when he dies on that cross, when that hour comes, will release the handbrake of history and set in motion the saving of the planet. We are here 2,000 years later saying to our community, Christ the King will come back as judge, but he is now gathering the nations. Though Mary cannot tell Jesus how to fix the problem, there's no wine, she's straightforward, she could submit to the decree of the king. And in verse 5, she does, says it this way to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Number one, remember the sign by inviting Jesus in. Do you have a favorite chair in your house? I've got a recliner. The favorite chair for joy to erupt, joy always loves to sit in this chair, is the chair of loss. It's the time this week when you run out where you need to invite Jesus in. Secondly, though, the sign is to be remembered by the filling of the jars full. Look at verse 6. There were six stone water jars. They were for the Jewish rites of purification. They held 20 or 30 gallons. So how much water are we talking about turning into wine? I think to be fair, about 150 gallons. This is a lot. It'd be thousands of dollars if two teenagers held a wedding today. It was over the top. This is so how Jesus shows up. But he takes this water that was intended for purification. You didn't walk into a wedding without cleaning your hands, especially if you were Jewish. Christ is turning water of a contracted Jewish imagination. Clean yourself off on the outside into an expanded imagination of inner purification that will come from the blood of Christ. An inner cleansing. And here comes the filling. Look at verse 7. He says to the servants, fill those jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. Oh, I love that. Don't miss that Jesus is turning water into wine. Christians that know your story the first plague was to turn the water of the Nile into blood. Decreation, curse, death. The first plague made the water undrinkable. The first sign of Jesus was to show up and to turn water to blood, but it was life-giving, creative, the water's not now only drinkable, but delightful. It's good wine. Is Jesus getting ready at this party for a new exodus? For everyone enslaved to their sin to be set free? But what if the servants refuse to fill the jars? Do you fill the opportunities of your day to the brim? We do the filling. He does the fascinating display of the arrival of the kingdom. We have to take the first step of obedience to our king. He'll put on the show. Jesus can and will display creative power in a marriage that's just, it's stuck. 
a marriage that is separating. Oh, invite him in. Take the next step of obedience. Financial anxiety, not a problem for this king. An unsatisfying job, you're beyond burnout. How? How can these be helped? Fill the jar to the brim. Do the next right thing that the king is asking you to do. How do I know what the next right thing is? They had it so clear. Just take take this and fill, fill the jars. It's not that clear, Howard. Let me give you an example in my own life. Whether it's at church or at work, I want to be a servant leader. Have you heard that term? I don't just want to lead people. Jesus has so impacted me that I want to be a servant leader. I have 100 teammates. I have a leadership team of six assistant managers. Here, I want to serve you, but I struggle. How do I fill the jar? When I talk to most of you or even people at work, there's this loud voice in my head saying, listen to me. I like to talk. I like to inspire. But I'm becoming convicted that there's like this arrow when I'm having an interaction that's dangling over both of us, and it's pointing to me. If I'm your servant, I should be pointing the arrow to you. This little voice in my heart hears the voice of Christ say, listen to the person you're leading. Listen to the person you're interacting with. So I turn that imaginary arrow to them like a weather vane, but it always comes back. It's coming back to me. Listening to somebody gives them the dignity of deep understanding. We're in such a distracted culture where everybody's looking at their phone and running to the next thing. What a gift to serve someone by listening. When you listen, you develop trust. So I can't do 10 things if I'm going to be a leader. And I'm not supposed to overthink it. Fill the jar. Here's what I do. I do the next right thing and I say, Lord, keep the arrow on them. Ask another question. Look into their eyes. Oh, it's difficult. But the next right thing for me is to listen a little longer. I don't know what it is for you. We need to obey. We need to fill the jars because he's going to tip us over and pour his life out where and when it is needed. And it will bring exhilaration to a thirsty world. It will bring it into your family, your workplace, into this city. Beauty of Christ will become brighter. His goodness will be greater. His truth will be more transcendent. We have some words here, if you're a newcomer, called gospel culture. We believe that This kingdom of Christ is so amazing that if we're honest with one another, this is a good thing. If we honor one another, it's a good thing. And our third one connects with the sign of the wine. We are a people who are full of joy. Joy is the new wine of Christ's reign. But you don't get joy without taking the next step. And Mary put it this way, do whatever he tells you. I spend so much time telling God to do whatever I want. (laughs) This is a different way of thinking. We must fill the jars to the brim. So we remember the sign of the wine. Remember, let's not forget it, by inviting Jesus in when we are inadequate, incompetent. We don't got 
what we need. We remember the sign of the wine by filling the jars. It's time to take a taste. Taste the wine with trust. Look at verse 8. Jesus says to the servants, draw some out. Take it to the master of the feast. They took it. When the master of the feast tasted that water, now become wine, he didn't know where it came from. The servants knew. I love that part, by the way. It's the nobodies who are invisible who saw that first sign. Verse 10, the bridegroom walks over to the, the, the kind of the wedding coordinator, if you walks over to the bridegroom and says, everyone, I mean, I've never been to a wedding. This is everybody. They serve that good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, in other words, they're a little tipsy, then they get the poor wine, but you... You kept that good wine until now. Can you imagine being that bridegroom? I mean, you screwed up the party. You know you are, are outed, but you're not. You, For some reason, someone has gotten your reputation, and you don't even deserve it. You know you ran out of the wine. I love this part. But it came because of that taste. That head waiter, oh, he's... He's been to a number of weddings to know what sort of wine, what sort of beverage. We are meant to taste the difference Christ makes in our lives. Wine does not just touch our taste buds. It's such a unique um, uh, beverage. Good wine wakes up our taste buds. It evokes a rush of sensation. That headwater did not know where that wine came from but he knew the quality. You taste the quality of life that Christ gives in so many ways. Now, we live in a culture. I want to talk to all of us as we get ready to go out on mission this week. Most of our friends and neighbors, they feel like they're totally drinking wine. Glenn Scrivener wrote a book called The Air We Breathe where most of our friends and neighbors believe in equality, compassion, consent, and freedom. But Christian, remember, these are from the kingdom, from the king. These do not come and grow unless they are rooted in the new wine. Equality. Once moral hierarchies were the norm, now we want to root root out inequalities wherever we find them. We get that from Christianity. Or compassion for the weak. The prevailing story is it's the strong who get ahead, definitely in South Charlotte. Not the Christian story. Compassion. Once pity for the undeserving, like these two teenagers, was considered weakness, but we now consider it a virtue or consent. Once powerful men could possess the bodies of whomever they pleased, but now we name this abuse and freedom. Once it was assumed that certain classes of people could be enslaved, now we consider that idea blasphemy. But remember something. If you want the kingdom, you must have the king. What do you do with our friends and neighbors? They're like, I don't need church. I love equality and compassion and consent. I think you love them enough to ask the hard questions. What are, I mean, I think this way as a Christian. I'm intoxicated with the new wine. But you don't use Christianity. Tell me why I should be compassionate to a weak person with your story. Don't use my story. Don't root it into my grapevine. You're going to need to know people and love people. You cannot have this kingdom without this king. You cannot have the kingdom joy and gladness of his new order 
without the king. So I encourage you, follow through on loving this taste and drinking this wine. What do the disciples do at this point of the story? How does the story conclude? I love what it says in verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. They went from taste to trust. One of the big problems that happened in the Enlightenment is that we got so scientific that we thought that knowing about something was the same as knowing, not in the Christian story. Christians do not believe that knowing about doctrine, knowing about details of, of, of this religion, we don't believe that knowing about is the same as knowing him. They did not believe a scientific, exciting thing that they figured out with water turning into wine. They believed in him. Knowing about Christ is about knowing Christ by experience. I've been really geeking out on pottery. Jesus is called, or God's called the potter. So I told my wife, let's take a pottery class. And if you know me well, I read a book on it. I read a book on what do you do, how do you... It was a fascinating book, and I walked into that class two weeks ago with a chip on my shoulder. I know pottery. And then a lady named, is it Catherine? She looks at me and she says, I've been doing this my whole life. You guys are going to struggle. And I'm like, I read the book. Well, I slap my clay down, I get my wheel going, and the, it flies off. I thought I knew about pottery. Friday night, I couldn't center the clay. She came over and she put her hand on my hand and she said, Howard, you'll never center if you don't let your hand, her hand, her experience, and I felt it for the first time. My clay started to do what I want, but it was because she was helping me. There is a difference between tasting the wine of the kingdom and trusting. There is a difference. The old Puritans would say it this way, spiritual taste buds erupt. And the Christian story and all that God did, his death for us, his command to obey, there's a powerful new sensation where we don't want to just taste. We want to drink it in. I normally conclude my sermons with a story. I just say, remember, remember, and what we've often done is we now have this. And you all know what Jesus said? Do this in remembrance. Let's pray. Father, we forget the signs and we think we know it all. And there's probably most people in here heard this story. Father, we need your help to invite Jesus in. We are weaker than we admit. We need your help to fill the jar. I don't know what, it's, what it is for my brothers and sisters and I don't know. I don't know what their jar is. For me, it's listening. It's so hard. But I want to do the next right thing. And Father, we love to taste. Oh, we love to read books and articles. and It's, it's harder to drink and to know this stuff by experience. But we want to know your son. We want to know him and make him known. Lord, prepare our hearts now to really and truly feast on this new wine. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.